Our goal is to prepare our children to be able to have answers to meaningful questions that are being asked by the unbeliever. Instead of using the phrase, the reason for the season, and you see that everywhere, right? Make sure you keep the reason for the season in there. We flip that because we teach differently, so we flipped it to what? We flipped it to the season of reason. And each one of these four messages are designed to give you more reasons to believe what it is you believe. This is not a blind leap of faith. Parents, you're not telling your children just to believe that Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. That's not enough. It's okay when they're little and you're laying down in bed with them and you're reading them Bible stories, but it's not okay when you send them to middle and high and off to college and to the academy. They need to know why this worldview is true. So that's how we teach. So this is a message of, of reason in the Advent season. Last week we looked at the reason of when. When did he come? What was the reason for that? And we unpacked it. This week, the reason of the season of reason, of who. Who is this one? We're going to look at Revelation 5. Go to Revelation 5. It'll be on the screens. It's not a typical message you'd read in, in Advent for Christmas. It's not the story. But it's, it's, there's a reason for that. Okay? Reason. We're back to reason again. So the reason of who, we're going to take it out of Revelation. Are you ready? Five. One to six. Quick quote. Quick quote from 1980. Anybody remember the name Francis Schaeffer? Okay, you remember the name C. Everett Koop? They were involved in a series of, of lectures and, and conferences. And in 1980, they were combined in a lecture. And these are the words from Francis Schaeffer. 19, 38 years ago. Ready for this? Schaefer said, the day is coming in the West. We're, we're the West, right? You know, we're the West. When the name of Jesus would not be recognized by the average young person, and if it were recognized, not a single historical fact about him would be known. Are we there? You bet we're there. 1980, the alarm bells have been ringing, and the church has remained somewhat silent and distant. Clock is ticking. Revelation 5. Hear now the word of God. John's vision in the Isle of Patmos. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, and moving down to verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tongue, tribe, nation. And people. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering 10,000 times 10,000. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the land be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. May God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and fallible word. Pray with me. Father, it's no accident we're here this morning. Everyone by divine appointment in their assigned seats. 
Speak now through this broken vessel and speak only your word from this pulpit. It is only the power of the word of God that applied by the spirit of God that changes and conforms us into the image and likeness of the Son of God, and that is what we desire most. Father, we always assume that there are some who are unbelievers who are in the sanctuary and certainly by way of the internet. Make this a word of salvation. Give the gift of repentance and faith. Make it a word of comfort for those in storm winds, and we know there are many in the midst of storms right now. And make it a word of rest for those who are tired, weary, and heavy laden. All things to all people that some might be saved. Father, we thank you that we have, by your Spirit, come this day to experience afresh our relationship with you. To be strengthened from the inside out. And to keep our mind and hearts centered on the Christ of Christmas. So come now, fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus and him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. <clears throat> three headings, very simple. Three headings under the title, The Reason of Who. Number one, what do historians say? So we'll go outside the scriptures. Number two, what does scripture say? Number three, what does Jesus say? And then finally, really, the most important question is, will come in the closing. What do you say? Who do you say he is? Before we do that, just two things out of that passage. The passage is rich. It's really deep. It's, there's a lot there, but just two points from the passage that will help us understand the importance of it under the reason of who. Okay? When you saw the word scroll in verse 2, take a look. The scroll... What does that mean? There's a lot of different meanings, and it kind of is all combined under the heading, really, of, of God's eschatological plan, if you will. The, everything that's been happening in history has been part of God's unfolding plan of redemption, right, from all of history. So that scroll contains the covenant, the law, the promises, the plans, everything that you can think of. The parallel comes right out of Daniel. Take a look at this. This is powerful to see the connection. between. Always want to see connections between the two, the old and the new, right? This is one word from one God to one world, right? Single word. In Daniel, this is a parallel passage. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll. So there's that scroll. Until the time of the end. Okay, and John saw that time of the end. So the reason of who points to the one who could open the scroll. And that moves us to verse 5. Just take a look. The lion. The lion is a wonderful symbol, if you will, of strength and courage and boldness. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. There's the, there's the line that has to come through David. We've talked about that before. Genesis 49 will really give us a great connection to this. You are a lion's cub, Judah. And then in verse 10, the scepter. Listen to me. This is important. The scepter will not depart from Judah or the ruler's staff from between his feet. Well, we, we know that can't just be an earthly promise. So what is that promise? Remember the covenants in the Old Testament? Remember the Mosaic? Remember the Abrahamic? Remember the Davidic? This is the Davidic covenant, the promise to David, that there will be one from his line that will forever and ever and ever sit on the throne. And, of course, that points us to whom? The promised one, the Messiah, this one, the one that John saw. 
the one that John saw in the Revelation. So all of it ties in beautifully together. And that's just two points out of that Revelation. We don't have any more time to unpack anymore. So the scroll and the line of the tribe of Judah point us to this, this reason of who. Okay? Let's launch out, shall we, into deep water and let our nets down for a catch. Number one, what do historians say? Before we look at that, let me make something perfectly clear. When you deal at a, at a historical level of, of, of research and, and, and evidence, there's no difference when you're researching spiritual matters or researching secular matters, okay? The sacred and, and the secular. The historical process is the same. The same rules and the same tools are used for historical research, nothing special because of you believe in something that's, that's divine or supernatural. It's the same rules. So the historians have to follow the same process. And really, there's only three headings for Jesus. He's a myth, a man, or the, he's the Messiah. And that's something that everyone has to make a decision on, right? Take a look at the word myth, just so we can be clear. This is, now, this, when I said to you that the church has become irrelevant, for the most part, this is, this, take a look at the definition of the word myth. A legendary, fictitious folklore character made up by an ignorant, lower-class culture to calm fear and to bring comfort. And that's, for the most part, how we're viewed. Just ignorant, don't really understand, and you need something out there to calm your fears when things go bump in the night, right? So for many, not many more historians today, but myth is one category. Let's take a look. Just going to show you a couple who believes Jesus was a myth? Probably one of the fathers of atheism, Bertrand Russell, 1872 to 1970. If you never read Why I'm Not a Christian, you should read it. This is it. I mean, why should we read what the other side is writing? Why? Well, Zig Ziglar had the best quote of all. He's, he would say these words. He would say, I would get up in the morning and I'd go to the table and I would read my devotion, read my scripture, do my prayers. Then I'd open the paper and I'd read the newspaper. That way I'd know what both sides were thinking. If, you don't, if we don't know what they're thinking, we can't enter into the conversation with them. We don't have a seat at the table anymore as it is. So how do we get back to that? We have to be willing to what? We have to be willing to contextualize, not the message, but how we deliver it. We have to. If we're going to make any progress and be the church we've been called to be. So here's one of the great historians who says that historically, ready, it is quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all. And if he did, we do not know anything about him. That was his take on it. See Dennis McKenzie a little later in life, 40, 1940 to 2009, I believe. He's an American atheist and an author. Here's what he writes. Jesus is a mythical figure in the tradition of pagan mythology. And almost nothing in all of ancient literature would lead one to believe otherwise. Anyone wanting to believe Jesus lived and walked as a real human must do so despite the evidence, not because of it. So now, let me make something very clear. But here's the challenge for all of us. At a scholarly level today, there aren't really any scholars who deny the existence, the historical Jesus. They don't. But we're not dealing with scholars. You're out on the street. You're at a party. You're at the beach. You're at a celebration. You're talking and engaging the average person in the general population. 
And there are many who believe that he's a mythical figure. Okay? So we have, we're confronted with that. But virtually no scholars today believe. They all believe Jesus existed. They'll kind of grant that. He, he was a real per- historical person in space and time. But there are some that still believe that, and that's, you're going to be confronted by that all the time. That happens all the time to me. How do we know he even existed? Well, how do you know that anybody exists? How do you know George Washington existed? How do you know? And then that kind of the bulb, light bulb goes off. How do you know? How do you know that Caesar crossed the Rubicon? How do you know any of that? How do you know anything about Alexander the Great? It, it, it's historical evidence that has to be researched. So he's, they no longer deny that. Second heading, he's a man. That's where most people would be. So take a look. He's a, Josephus is a first century historian. He started out Jewish, and then he kind of converted over to, to, to the Roman side when, when, when Roman had really became, made it difficult for him to do what he did as a Jewish historian. So he's a Jewish Roman historian scholar. In his antiquities, very famous writing, he writes this. At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus, acknowledging the fact that there was this guy. He was a contemporary, but a few years after Jesus. So he writes, His conduct was good and virtuous, and many people from among the Jews and other nations, so Gentiles as well, became his disciples. Now, here's the key. Watch this line. Now he's getting more deeply historical for us. What's he doing? He's bringing another historical figure into the the mix. Pilate, who is a clear historian. Does anyone deny the fact that Pilate existed? No. Same people say, well, we don't know that Jesus existed. Say say that Pilate did. Well, Pilate engaged with Jesus. And in historical documents, they're both mentioned together. Pilate condemned him to be crucified. That's in the Antiquities. And his disciples did not abandon his discipleship even after he, he was dead. They reported that he had appeared to them after his crucifixion and that he was alive. So that's, that's he was a man. That's historical evidence from first century Jewish Roman historian Josephus. Come more common into the more contemporary age, 1866. Remember, remember the War of the Worlds? Remember that guy? H.G. Wells? Okay. The Time Machine, some of the great works that he did. I think he passed in uh, 1946-ish time. H.G. Wells. Listen to what he writes. Remember, under the heading of a man. I'm a historian, Wells says. I'm not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. That's an unbelieving historian. Jesus existed. is easily the most dominant figure in all of history, but he didn't believe him as Messiah. He was a man. Then finally, Messiah, I could give you a lot of different quotes. Just going to give one, just one very simple, and then it's, it'll be, the question will be asked of you at the end. Dr. Philip Schaeff was an 800s, uh, 1800s church historian. Here's what he writes. Standing on this rock, the rock of the Lord Jesus, I felt safe against all the attacks of infidelity. And they come from everywhere. The person and work of Christ is the greatest and surest of all facts, as certain as my own existence. As certain as my own existence, he says. He clearly was the Messiah to him. So now we go to Scripture. We saw what historians say, and you could do your own study, and you should. Just, just work through this, historian after historian. What do they say about who he is? And now we have to go to, you want to be able to go outside, and you want to be able to go inside. 
right? When we, when we work on the, 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 the validity of the resurrection, what, what do we do on that? We use our four E's, and we're outside of the Bible for almost all of it. Jesus existed, he was executed, and the tomb was empty. All of that comes from outside the Scripture. Even the, even, even the, 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 the eyewitness accounts after the resurrection, all of that comes from outside of Scripture, and sure, certainly we take it from inside. But you have a lot of documented information that helps strengthen your understanding. And why is it important to strengthen your understanding? It's not that critical. You don't need to be an apologist, and you don't need to have evidence to be saved. Nod your heads. Okay? You have the inner witness and testimony of the Holy Spirit. Yes? So you know you're saved. So you say, boy, this is a lot of extra stuff. Why do I need to? You don't need to know this to be saved. But if you don't know this, you can't get into conversation with people that don't know it because you can't engage them. You don't have any answers to real heartfelt questions that they ask. There was a time in evangelism where we tried to avoid the questions. There was. We even had a whole section that taught us how to avoid objections. Because we looked at objections as they're just trying to push off being able to make a decision. But those people had a frame of reference of a creator God, the fall of man, and the kingdom of heaven, and a promised Messiah. We don't push objections off anymore. We welcome them. We engage them in their objections. Why? We have to. Or we don't get the right to ask them, are you willing, ready, and able to accept Jesus as your Lord? You don't get there. So we go outside, then we go inside. What do the scriptures say? Let's take a look. We're going to go prophecy fulfillment two times. Real simple. The Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. 700 years, Isaiah. 700, approximate 700 years before the birth of Jesus. This is what he writes. And let me just say something. Liberal scholarship will say that this is to be understood as the son of of Ahaz, Hezekiah. It's not. It can't be because it gets quoted in the New Testament. And there's a couple things for you to learn. If this, let me ask you, I'm asking the mothers now, all the mothers who've had children, okay? The Lord will give you a sign, mother. Was there a sign in any way, shape, or form for your conception? Or was it a normal kind of conception? Okay, so if Jesus had a normal kind of conception, there wouldn't be any sign to it, yes? There has to be something to the sign. So then the scripture goes on to explain the sign. A virgin, a virgin will be with child. Well, that's strange. That doesn't normally happen, right? So that's the sign. And we'll give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel. We often use the term Emmanuel, and we just use it for its generic understanding of God with us. It's deeper than that. It's really an expression of the dual nature of Jesus, God God with us. So it's really the divine and the human nature put together. That's really how you should see Emmanuel. Yes, God with us, that's a good one. That's, it's, that's what it means, the generic, but we want to go deeper in our understanding. So that's prophecy, but then what happens? We look at the fulfillment in Matthew. Take a look, Matthew 1. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. This took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet, the virgin. Now, again, liberal scholarship will take us back to the Hebrew. The Hebrew word Alma. I don't have it on the screen. I just want to tell you through it. The Hebrew word Alma, they will say, means a young, unmarried woman. That's not what it means. It's not what it means. You can do your own research. The seven times that that word, you have to go through the Hebrew, though. You can't go to your English translations. You, go to the, you have to go to the Hebrew, and you've got to look at the word Alma. It's used seven times in the Old Testament in, every, in six books. 
seven times. I believe it's in Genesis, Exodus, it's in the Psalms, it's in Proverbs, Song of, of Solomon, Isaiah. Seven times that word Alma is used. It is exclusively used for virgin, not a young unmarried woman. Virgin. Virgin. That's the sign. She's a virgin. See, and now, listen, listen, listen to the benefit you have today. In the era of modernity, you didn't have this benefit, right? The late 1600s till about 1950, 1960, it was all rational thought. Science and rational thought ruled the day. There was no supernatural. Everything was in the natural box. But what happened after World War I and World War II? Postmodernity. Why? They said rational thought isn't working. Science isn't working. There's something missing here. And I'm empty. There's something that I'm empty. I I don't understand this emptiness and this rational thinking isn't working there. And I'm just generalizing. I'm not, we can't go deep. But from post, from modernity to postmodernity, right now, everyone is what? A spiritualist. So the door's open to, to what? The supernatural. The supernatural is possible again in their minds. Where for hundreds of years it wasn't possible. The supernatural didn't. They had to find a natural explanation for what happened. Not anymore. That's why you see the great rise in Pentecostalism. Why? The supernatural, the spiritual aspect of it has exploded. And the culture says, I need something. We're supposed to have that too as Presbyterians. The spirit is alive and at work. But now they have a frame of reference that says the supernatural is possible. So it's easier now to enter into the conversation and say the virgin gave birth. Because if there's an open door for the supernatural, and if in the beginning God did create, how hard is it for a virgin to get pregnant? It's not hard. That's not a leap of faith for those who believe in the prospect of a God. So now we're in a different cultural context. The door's open for us. We have ways in. Everybody is spiritual today. It's hard to find anybody who doesn't believe in something. I'm not saying they believe in the the God, but they believe in something. It's no longer just rational thought and science. That didn't work. It's 400 years of a failed experience. Okay? Let's go to the next prophecy and fulfillment. Just two more real quick. Prophecy 5-2. We did it last week in Micah. Micah said what? Out of you, Bethlehem, will come a ruler over Israel whose origins are from old, from ancient of days. Just one more point. See, this is how you have to sometimes come to the Scripture. Look at the passage. So again, you'll have liberal scholars say, ah, oh, no, 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 no. This isn't talking about uh, the coming Messiah. There's no messianic thing. What does ancient times mean? That's a Hebrew expression. You know what the Hebrew expression means? It's, it's referencing the eternality of God. Out of you, Bethlehem, will come a ruler over Israel. Okay, so is it, is it just a normal earthly king? Whose origins are from old. Okay, that's something that you need to pause and take notice of. But from ancient of times, now the whole bar has been raised. It's not from the earthly line of, of the kings in Israel. It's somebody beyond that. It's the true king. Remember, the prophet, the priest, and the kings in the Old Testament pointed to what? The true prophet, the true priest, the true king who was coming from ancient times, the eternal one. That's the prophecy. And then to really put the liberal scholars to, to, to sleep and tell them that it doesn't work, we have the fulfillment of it. 
So we see it beautifully come together. Look at Luke 2. And I know we saw it last week. We'll be brief. Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth. Jesus should have been born in Nazareth. It's where they lived. They didn't live in Bethlehem. They were in Nazareth. And Caesar issues this decree. So we say this, right? Thank God for Caesar. No. Well, you can if you like. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But God was overruling and superintending all of the acts of Caesar. Yes? So Caesar issues a decree and all of the families have to go back to their hometown to register. Where does Joseph have to go? To Bethlehem. While she's pregnant. And while they're there, check it out, verse 6, I think, where is it, 6? And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. There, where? Bethlehem. If Jesus isn't born in Bethlehem and he's born in Nazareth, I wouldn't be here today and you wouldn't be here today. Or I would hope you wouldn't be here. So all I have to do is find one prophecy that didn't come together. So all I have to do is find... Now, that doesn't mean prophecies that haven't been fulfilled yet. Remember, there's another coming. Jesus says, I'll be back. Don't forget that. So he's coming. So those haven't been fulfilled. But as Dr. Kennedy would say, 333 is the great number. Birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. 333 prophecies that have been fulfilled, that are rooted in that portion of, of, of the life of Christ. It's unbelievable. So here you have, but all you need is one. And sometimes skeptics will say who don't understand the scripture, well, he was born in Nazareth. He grew up in Nazareth. No, he wasn't born in Nazareth. No. No, he lived in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. That was fulfilled. Okay? Prophecy, fulfillment, you see it? So what do historians say? Man, myth, Messiah, what do scriptures say? Now, what does Jesus say? And then we'll close. This is one of the best passages in all of Scripture to see what Jesus says because it received the greatest response that you could have ever imagined. Listen to these words. Jesus stood up to read. Remember, remember last week? Just a quick note. Remember we said the reason of when? The reason of when? Why was it then? And we gave you all the reasons why then, not today, not 300 years before or 1,000 years before. Because in the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4, 4, that was the perfect time that God had ordained. Remember, you had, you had that, that, that perfect storm of, of Rome, the Pax Romana, and all the roads that led to Rome. And you had the Greek, you had the Greek culture. They had Hellenized the entire known world. You had a common language. right? You remember all of that? So, so we had the reason of when. But you had the Jews who had the scriptures and the synagogues. That's why this is important. Jesus wasn't allowed to go into the temple to teach. They were trying to put him to death. But everywhere he went, there were synagogues. If you had 10 men registered in the city, you could have a synagogue. 10 men. You have a synagogue. So synagogues are everywhere. So everywhere he went, he got to preach. So now he's, he's done some ministry. He goes back to his hometown. You ready? Now he's back to his hometown. Jesus stood up to read. The itinerant preacher comes. They say, we'd love you to read today. And expound the scriptures. He says, I'd love to. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Notice he didn't ask for the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. It was handed to him. Uh Uh-oh, looks a little bit like providence to me. I could be wrong. Could just be good luck. Lucky for Jesus. Unrolling it, he found the place. Oh, lucky again. Good job. Might have been like this. Ah! Where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. 
That's not just the physical poor, which is as important to preach to the poor. It is poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of... Okay, you have to see how all this translates because all of this comes into what? This comes into the Sermon on the Mount. All of this comes into the sermon, okay? He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, not just prisoners in jail, but that too, but prisoners to sin, Satan, and death, okay? He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the recovery of the sight for the blind. Did he heal blind people? Yes, but what was the deeper level of blindness? Spiritual. They couldn't see spiritually. They were blinded. The scales need to be taken from the eyes. People, sometimes people say to me, how come they can't understand? They can't understand because God hasn't given the understanding. All of it comes from God. So we pray for God's grace to be poured out into the lives of others. Remember the, remember, the, remember the tax collector? God, be merciful to me. God, be merciful to me. Take the scales from my eyes. Raise me from death to life. And then it gets deeper. Watch. And then to proclaim, to release the oppressed, and then to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's Leviticus 25. What is that? Remember the year of Jubilee? What happened in the year of Jubilee? The trumpets would sound. The slaves would be set free. Property would be returned. That's the year of Ju- All debts would be canceled. This is what Jesus is saying. He's reading this passage that every single Jew was waiting for. We're not just waiting for the 50th year. Some of them didn't live that 50, right? They died and then you got somebody else. We want that real year of Jubilee to come, the one that's going to come forevermore, the promise to be fulfilled. So now, watch what he does. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You realize what just happened? For 1,500 years of Jewish history, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sermons were given all throughout the land, in synagogue after synagogue after synagogue. Scriptures were read, and the scriptures were expounded. But before the scriptures were expounded, what would the rabbi say? Someday, this scripture will be fulfilled in your hearing. Everything changed on this day. Why? Because Jesus said today. Today. Why? I'm the who of Christmas. Today. The only rabbi who ever could have said that. Today in your hearing. Scripture is fulfilled. And they rose up and they celebrated. Hosanna. Blessed be the one who comes in the name of... No, that's in a different book. They rose up, drove him out of the synagogue to the edge of town to stone him to death. I'm happy to announce to you after my first sermon, nobody did that to me. I don't know if they were blessed by it. I don't know if there was anything good that came out of it. But at least they didn't chase me out of town to stone me. They wanted to kill him. Why? Because it was true. And they couldn't deal with the truth. They knew who he was. They watched what he did. They didn't want to change. 
Rabbis were losing their control. How do we close? Take a look at John one more time before we get there. You know how the Jews and the Samaritans had tremendous hostility for each other, right? They hated each other. The Samaritans, a a half-breed. There's one thing they had in common. They were both expecting Messiah to come. Remember, Remember the woman at the well? Take a look at this, and then we'll go to the close. John 4, the woman said, this is the woman who came to get water in the middle of the day. She was an outcast, so she had to come at noon when nobody would be out except Jesus had a divine appointment in Samaria. Disciples didn't know Jew went through Samaria, but Jesus does. Sits at the well of Jacob, and he's waiting for whom? His bride, the Samaritan woman, his bride. Right? Remember the Old Testament patriarchs who met their brides at a well? Can't go any more on that, but that's, this is the bride. I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. The Samaritans knew that. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Who did Jesus? People say to me, Jesus never claimed to be God. I wrote an article. I wrote an article. We write apologetically now for the good news. So I wrote an article with, with, the, with the heading, Jesus never, Jesus never said... You gotta be careful, right? Can't say claim. Jesus never said, I am God. He didn't. In that construction, he never said, I am God. But he said it in every other possible way. That was the whole point. It was a play on words for the title. And we got a lot of comments back on that. Wow, that was a neat twist on it. Because he never did say, I am God. But what did he say? Today, in your, in, in your hearing, it's been fulfilled. I am he, the one that you're looking for. I and the Father are one. If you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and on and on. Before Abraham was, I am. Over and over and over. He tells us he's, but he never said, I am God. So the skeptic is right. Because he doesn't understand how it was said in every other possible way. So Jesus again says to this, I am he, the one speaking to you. So now, what do you say? Doesn't matter. You grow up in a Christian home, praise God. Thank your mama and dad. Thank grandma. Thank grandpa. Thank all of the family that you grew up in a Christian home. But that doesn't save you. Inasmuch as God is pleased to save in the line of generations, and we see that, right? Generationally, we see that. But all in Israel, not of Israel. It has to be individual to you. What does your heart say? Are, 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 is it, when we send our kids off to college, you send them. They better not be leaving with your faith. It will be dismantled overnight. Even if they have their own, they're coming after them. But it better be theirs. We're blessed right now that the first two we sent off, they have a living relationship with Jesus. But many have, and they're in, they're in a secular institution. But many, many have their faith utterly dismantled. And we don't have to wait for college now. We're in a different world. Our high schoolers and our middle schoolers, it, it starts there in, in the public school system. Okay? So now, what do you say? Matthew 16. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or a prophet. But here's the question. Ready? But what about you? Kids? Adults? All of you. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter, being Simon Peter, speaking for the whole group answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, 
For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. You see, that's got to be revealed by Father in heaven. Right? Got it? Okay, so now, perhaps the best close for the reason of who has to come from somebody who's far deeper in scholarship than I will ever be. Remember the name Clive Staples? Anyone know his last name? Lewis. C.S. He believed if the gospel was presented in a, in a reasonably cogent and coherent way, there really was, there were some responses you couldn't make. And then there really was only one response that you should make. So he frames it this way. But the context is if, if it's framed well, there's some things that you can't say. And you'll see it in this passage. It's a powerful, powerful way to close out the reason of who. Ready? C.S. says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. And this, I'm confronted with this on a regular basis. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. But I don't accept his, him to be God. I don't. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, kids. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a good human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Who do you say? There's a number of places in Scripture that we could say, boy, that just comes under the heading of really sad. But if you understand the context of the first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, right? There's probably no sadder portion of Scripture than the encounter with Jesus and and Pilate. Jesus and Pilate have this encounter, right? He's trying to question him, and you you remember the passage, but you may have forgotten. It's easy to, to miss this one portion in it, which is just so striking. And it really points to the cultural context that we live in today. Pilate, Pilate comes back into Jesus. And he asks the, the greatest question that could ever be asked. What is truth? Remember who he's asking. He's asking the truth. John 14 says, I'm the way, the truth. He's asking the truth. What is truth? And with this, he went out. He never waited for an answer. That's it. That's the world we live in. What is truth? Truth is relative. It's whatever I want it to be. It's whatever works for me. You have your truth. I have mine. Let's just get on with life. Pilate asked the truth, the most important question, and he doesn't wait for an answer. He's either a myth, he's a man, or he's Messiah. Final question, who do you say Jesus is, the one called the Christ? You have to make a decision. You have to decide. 
Is he who he says he is? Did he do what he said he did? Is he coming back? If he is, we should live in the light of what? The truth that he's coming back. We live in the light of eternity. But right now is a moment of invitation. If you've never received Jesus as Lord and Savior, it's not a man's work. It's not a work of, of, of the human heart. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. God is working inside your heart right now. You feel a pulling and a tugging, maybe by way of the Internet. There are many people who watch this each week by way of the Internet. So right now, with outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, Jesus says, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you know the first rest that we get when we come to Christ? Do you know the first rest? We get to rest from our self-salvation project. We don't have to keep trying to save ourselves. Isn't that good news? That was really good news for me in 1995 when we got saved. We can stop trying to save ourselves because we can't do it anyway. We know it's not working. So Jesus says, come. Will you come? Come to Christ, all who are weary and heavy laden. Put your doing down. No need to parade the good works. None of them are that good anyway. Jesus says, I came and I did everything that needed to be done on your behalf. You need only transfer your trust to me. Trust in Christ alone. Bow the heart and the head to Christ. If you've never prayed, we're going to pray together right now. Pray with me. And if you do pray for the first time, come see me. If you've prayed and you have some other heart uh, wound, some other area that you'd like prayed for, come at the end. I'm here. I'll stay as long as it, I'll stay all day. This is a moment of salvation. Tomorrow it may be too late. The Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. Come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, if there's anyone in here right now or by way of the internet who has never surrendered control of their lives to you, make this a moment of salvation. Give the gift of repentance and faith. We're not saved by a prayer, a profession of a prayer, but we're saved by the possession of a faith. But these words are, are, are simple to pray. So if you've never prayed, pray now with me. Oh God, I heard the truth today. I understand the reason of who, and I, I see it to be Jesus Christ. He is the promised Messiah. I believe that now because you have given me You've given me the faith to believe. And I ask that you give me the gift of repentance and faith. I want to turn from the way that I've lived. And I want to turn to you. I want to live. I know I won't do it perfectly, but I want to live for you. I want a new life. I want a life with more with meaning and purpose and significance. I want a relationship with somebody who won't walk away from me. And that's what happens when you get Christ. So I confess to you, O oh God. I know I'm a sinner and I need Jesus as my Savior. Come into my life. I give you all that I am. And Father, for those here who have walked many for decades, strengthen all of us in our faith and grow us up into Christ and use us as instruments of both salvation and sanctification in your mighty right hand. For this we ask in Christ's name, amen. Would you all stand as we-